Welcome to episode 49 of Now We're Talking. This is a podcast about communication skills. And my name is Rob Danish. I'm a professor of communication at the University of Waterloo in Canada. Uh, so lately, we've been talking about leadership pra- practices, and I want to make a bit of a pivot today away from something else, uh, away to something else. So uh, some of you might know that I published a book recently called What Effect Have I Had? Uh, which is available on Amazon.com. You can buy it. Um, it it uh, outlines 100 communication practices uh, in uh, that can apply to interpersonal communication, small group communication, writing, public speaking, and leadership. Uh, I came across a book last week that got me thinking about the sequel to What Effect Have I Had? And that book is called Atomic Habits by James Clear. Uh, the subtitle is Tiny Changes and Remarkable Results. Um, that book is about how habits shape our identity and how important habits are. And he calls habits the compound interest of self-improvement. And uh, his argument is if you get a little bit better every day at a couple couple of different things, then you'll get a lot better over the long run, essentially. Um, So small changes can often appear to make no difference initially, but they make a really big or powerful difference over the long run because they compound. Uh, So he calls an atomic habit a kind of little habit that's part of a larger system. So just like atoms are kind of the building blocks of molecules, atomic habits are the building blocks of the results in our life. Um, And he goes on to say, if you want better results, you should forget about setting goals. And instead of setting goals, you should focus on your system, your set of behavioral practices and habits. And if you improve your system, the results will follow. Um, I think that that's mostly accurate. Um, From his perspective, from James Clear's perspective, you don't rise to the level of your goals. You kind of fall to the level of your systems for achieving those goals. So um, my son right now plays a lot of table tennis and he's getting pretty good at it. The question is going to be whether his habits or his daily practices or his routine resembles as a kind of system that a professional table tennis player would um, would employ or are his habits or his system that of an amateur. That will probably mean the difference in the outcome for him of future tournaments. Anyway, this book, Atomic Habits, had got me thinking about a sequel to What Effect Have I Had? And uh, so James Clear doesn't he doesn't really talk about communication at all. He's got no interest in communication. Um, but I started to think about atomic communication. Um, and those would be the smallest, simplest, most minute communication practices that are the building blocks for all of the other communication practices that we would employ. In other words, I started thinking about what the smallest little things are that are behind uh, the practices that I outline and what effect have I had, well, what might those atomic practices look like? Uh, the other way we might, the other name might be micro-communication practices, and that's what I think I'll call or title this episode of podcast is micro-communication practices. So what's the smallest unit of a communication practice that I can evaluate or attempt to employ 
that over time would compound that, oh, well, in other words, in a moment, it might not show itself to be terribly effective, but over time will compound into a really kind of effective device. So I started thinking about what these would be, and I'm just starting to take notes on what some of these micro or atomic communication practices would be. And I wanted to talk through a couple of them that are at least on my mind that we've kind of come across and I've come across in classes, uh, but I've never written that much about. Um, the first one is what I take to be a small group communication practice, but is also an interpersonal communication practice. And it goes something like this. Um, there's a tiny rule of thumb that suggests that in small group communication practices, if everybody in the small group took one breath in between them saying some, the end of someone else saying something and before they spoke, the whole team's level of improvement would, would be better. Uh, so in other words, uh, you have a kind of six or eight person deliberation at a meeting, for example. Uh, the meeting is going fine. Someone makes a suggestion at the meeting. That person stops talking. And instead of someone else just jumping right in, collectively, everyone or individually also, everyone would take a breath before they respond. This is what I mean by a micro communication practice. You might not see any results immediately. So I might in one meeting take a breath and then say the same thing I would have said without, with or without the breath. Um, but presumably slowing down the deliberative process can over time um, create different opportunities for us to agree or disagree or find uh, less emotionally charged space to move the conversation forward, etc. So one micro communication practice that I'd recommend, and this I think applies also to interpersonal communication. Uh, as soon as someone, your partner, someone that you're talking to says something, take one breath before responding, just one breath, and see what happens if that practice is becomes a habit of yours over time. Um, Here's another little habit that I'm constantly conscious of in small group communication. So as a chair of my department right now, I try very, very carefully to make sure that in meetings I say we and not I. So whenever um, there's an active subject of a sentence that I'm speaking or that I'm articulating, I try not to do so in terms of I am doing this or I am I'm doing that but in terms of we. Um, so we as a department are invested in uh, raising enrollment rates. I don't say I want to raise enrollment rates, and it's a, it's a tiny, tiny communicative practice. Um, it's very small, but um, if I did it over time, if I continued to refer to us or to the department as we and not me as I in those sentences, presumably... Uh, one instance of it won't be enough to build a collective identity, but multiple instances of it would be enough to build a collective identity as a department. And what you might get to see is other people also saying we instead of I, etc. So that's a kind of a second example. Um, so a, a third example, um, this is a kind of negative example that I try and get my students away from in their writing. I may have talked about this in one of the writing episodes, but uh, when you learn a new language, there's, or, well, it, many people in their writing like to say there is or there are. So 
there is no reason why uh, Trump should pull troops out of Syria. There is and there, or there are become the subject and the verb, the main subject and verb of the sentence. And I describe that to my students as static. The main subject and the verb aren't doing anything. They're, they're abstract. And if you rewrote that sentence, you can rewrite any sentence with there is or there are with a more active subject and a more active verb uh, based on whatever comes after the there is or there are. When I see that as a tiny little micro communication practice in a student's writing, it's not that it's grammatically inaccurate uh, or incorrect. It's not that it's wrong on some fundamental level, um, but it's a tiny little practice that shows um, that the student feels a distance and a sense of insecurity or uncertainty um, or that they're, they're feigning authority. Um, it doesn't do the work that the student wants it to do, wants, wants the sentence to do. It never does. Um, so I encourage them to kind of go through their writing, look for the there is and there are, underline them, and then change those sentences to have more active subjects and, and verbs. Um, so that's a kind of micro-communication practice that we ought to avoid. Another really, really tiny, tiny micro-communication practice is that in my public speaking class, or in my advanced uh, speech writing class, one rule that I used to have, I've gone kind of away from this, is that if a student is speaking in class and they say, um, they have to stop, start over again what they were saying without the um every time. And the first few weeks of class are very, very slow because everyone says um all the time. Uh, and then we add to those filler words. If they say um, like, uh, what that, there's a couple others I add. And we try to replace um or like with pauses. So silence, total silence. Because in speaking, those are just filler words anyway. They're filling in space in a kind of irrelevant way. They're just also static like there is or there are. But the silence can actually do more labor than the um or the like does. So we look at that micro-communication practice, the use of um or like in our habitual speech, and we try and eliminate that practice and replace it with the practice of allowing for, for silence. And then we see the transformative effect. Of course, once students master that, once they've ditched the micro-communication practice of using um or like and started speaking with silences instead, they project a greater degree of confidence. They're much easier to listen to. They're much more engaging. There's a whole series of compound benefits that come after the repeated kind of habitual practice. So the problem with these kinds of, and here's, okay, here's the, the big deal about these. So habits are things that we do routinely without thinking. So our habitual reaction to a situation is the way we behave without thinking first about our behavior. And we have, all of us have communication habits. And those communication habits are likely micro or atomic communication habits. They're really small kind of foundational things because in any situation when we go to communicate, the content or the, the kind of substance of what we want to say is has to be the thing we think about. But oftentimes the shape or the structure of it is not something we think about. We just habitually put the content of our thought into a structure. Sometimes that structure has there is or there are. Sometimes it has um or like. Sometimes it has I instead of we. Sometimes we rush to, to say it instead of pausing to say it. Um, so those habits, those habitual kind of knee-jerk responses, communicative responses to situations, 
if they're not productive or they're not useful, then they can really harm our overall communicative effect, uh, effectiveness. So what we ought to do is review or at least gain an awareness of what our atomic communication habits are or what our micro communication habits are and ask whether or not they're accurately representing who we want to be or who we want to portray ourselves as and ask whether or not they're really doing the work we want them to do on audiences. So if I'm saying I all the time in a department meeting, does it represent the kind of person that I am trying to be in that situation? Does it represent my best self? And does it do the work of binding the department together? The answer is no. Uh, but if I have a habitual kind of need or a habitual uh, reaction to situations that I'm always speaking in terms of I first and we and not in terms of we, then that's a kind of micro communication habit that might get in the way of producing positive uh, results or being as effective as I, I want to be or I need to be. So um, one thing that all of us could do, and I'm in the process of doing this for myself, is and part of the things thing I would do in this new book, if I ever get to writing it, is I try to make a catalog of my atomic communication habits, so my micro communication habits. What are they? I noticed the other day that uh, when lately, for some reason, whenever someone asks me how I'm doing, I say, good, good. So I can say good twice. Why? I don't know. It's a kind of habitual response right now to people asking me that friendly and innocuous question. And so I got to wondering whether that is really representing how, what I wanted to represent, whether it's doing the work that I wanted to do, um, why I came about that micro communication habit or that atomic communication habit, what I would need to do to change it. So in any of these cases, if you want to change your micro communication habits, or your atomic communication habits, you need to identify what they are to catalog them and then reflect on them a little bit and then figure out what useful substitutes would be. I'm not sure I've landed on what a useful substitute would be for the question, how are you doing? Uh, I try to ask, I try to habitually respond with a question about how others are doing. And uh, I've recently stopped doing that and, re and replaced it with this good, good thing. And so I'm not sure how I feel about that, or I'm not sure what the best appropriate response would be. Uh, but I have recognized it at least as a habitual communication habit, uh, a habitual communication response that's tiny, but that might not do all the work that it, it needs to do. So um, one useful bit of advice is to try, for all of us that are listening, to try to catalog those micro communication practices. And I think also about uh, nonverbal communication in these ways. So a lot of our nonverbal postures are micro-communication habits that have just become routinized that we don't think of. And so I thought, started thinking about in meetings, uh, I try my best to lean forward and to lean toward the person that is speaking. So I'm always thinking as a kind of micro-habit, okay, person X is speaking, I will lean toward them. And leaning toward them is an indication of interest. They will kind of uh, subconsciously or pre-reflectively kind of pick up on that level of engagement and have a positive response to it. But lots of us have negative micro-communication habits, micro-nonverbal communication habits. So that might be... So in, in my advanced public speaking class, this is another example, but some people are either sway back and forth a lot while they're speaking or they clutch the... The, the lectern or the thing they're 
talking with, they clutch it, clutch it really firmly so that they, you can see the stress in their fingers. Uh, other people like to pace back and forth. Uh, th there's all sorts of these sort of small little communication practices. And in my advanced public speaking class, we try to pause on those too and, and ask whether or not what work they're doing and whether or not the speaker is even conscious of the fact that they're employing those or, or using them. And then we get students to reflect a little bit about what those look like. We even do an exercise where students just walk. They walk from their seat to the front of the room in order to give a speech. And most of us have no idea how we walk. We don't pay any attention to how we walk. And how we walk is a kind of micro communication practice where we're telling, we're having effects on others that we walk by all the time, or we're usually not thinking about them. They're habitual. Walking is the most habitual thing that we do. Uh, but the, the effects that our walking might have might not be the effects that we want. So I have the audience sort of report the what they are reading from the walk of every student. And usually the student's like, well, I had no idea if that's what my walk meant to others. And so then they have to try and walk differently or they have to try and identify the tiniest kind of ingredient of their walk that might be uh, signaling or uh, producing an effect that they don't want. So one tiny little thing to look out for with with your walk is um, the the angle of your chin. So if while you're walking, your chin is always angled down, it displays or it kind of communicates a disinterest, a kind of uh, morose sort of uh, lethargy or something. If your chin is angled up, it connotes confidence or enthusiasm or energy. And when you're, when you're about to engage in a speech, if the audience feels the first thing and not the second, it's going to influence their reaction to the speech later. So that's a kind of nonverbal micro communication practice that's quite easy to change. So the first thing I ask my students, if I see that, if I see them walking with their angle of their chin down, I ask them to walk with the angle of their chin up and just be conscious of where their chin is and adjust it as a micro communication practice. Uh, before they give their speech and see what happens. And so they do that. And again, oftentimes the audience has a different reaction to the speech. Um, in that class, it's a little hard because the, the game is up when we're talking about these micro practices because we all start paying attention to them and they're no longer hidden. And students can kind of sort of, they notice when someone's changed the angle of their chin when they walk to the front of the class and they can make something of that. Um, but regardless, um, the idea is that we're at least cataloging some of those micro communication practices. So if, if you find it difficult to catalog what the ways in which you write and speak, you can at very least catalog the ways in which you habitually hold your body and especially in meetings or in uh, when giving presentations uh, or when talking to your significant other. Uh, so those have a series of micro or atomic communication nonverbal communication habits there. And then how we speak, the, how we organize sentences, the kinds of words we choose to use frequently, et cetera, can also be a set of micro communication practices or atomic communication practices. So if we made a catalog of those, uh, we might ask ourselves, do these micro practices have the kind of influence or the kind of effect that we want them to have? And if they don't, then we have to adjust those micro habits. Now, it might be the case that in our adjustments to those micro habits, we don't do, we don't get immediate success. It's not immediately clear that there is the effect that we want because we're not talking about some large communication practice that's supposed to be incredibly persuasive in the moment. 
But the idea that James Clear was after in Atomic Habits is, I think, true of communication as well. If you replace some bad habits, some bad micro habits or some bad atomic habits with some more positive um, micro habits or atomic habits, you're likely to see a, a large scale benefit over time. There will, the, the effectiveness of that habit will compound like compound interest does over time. Uh, so one day, hopefully I'll get around to writing a book on micro communication habits or atomic communication habits. I got to start taking some notes and uh, of the ones I see and the ones I notice uh, and then go from there. Okay. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening to episode 49 and I'll, I'll see everyone or talk to everyone again, uh, during episode 50 in a week.